0: Okay, I'm going to uh, jump right into this and read uh, John 17, verses 6 through 19. We've been parked there for a few weeks. Uh, John 17, well, we've read the whole thing, uh, verse 1 through 26, but we're going to read just 6 through 19 today. I have manifest- This is Jesus praying just hours even before his arrest um, And mock trial and crucifixion. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is uh, often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and yet, because of what he deals with, this is just prior to his um, laying down his life. As we were singing earlier, you've laid yourself down to raise us up, and this is just prior to him accomplishing what he came to do. And uh, he he came to well. We'll get to that. But this is just prior to the finishing of his earthly ministry. And so they call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And yet, there is no other prayer this long of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And five times in this prayer, he refers to Father. Jesus was praying, Abba which is translated daddy, but not, not like just what a little kid would say, daddy, but he's my dad, my papa, my abba. It's, there's no lack of reverence there, but five times he refers to his abba, to his dad in this prayer. It's the high priestly prayer, and yet it's intimate. It's really intimate because, of course, he is the high priest, but he's also the son as he says several times in here, and it took the Son to come and reveal the Father. And in this section, the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Father, glorify now your Son together with yourself. And he prays for himself and what he's about to go through. But now in this section, from verses 6 to 19, he prays for his followers, particularly for the 11 followers That were there with him. But then he also begins to pray for us. The downline followers who believe because of the word. That's been passed down from generation to generation. From generation of believers to the next generation. Now, So in this section he's praying for his followers. To whom he has given eternal life. Remember back in verse 2 he says. Those you gave me out of the world. I gave eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So he prays for those to whom he's given eternal life. And what he says here in verse 6 ties in with the theme of eternal life and knowing God. He says, I manifested your name to those you gave me out of the world. The ministry of Jesus was to reveal God To the world. To reveal him to us. I manifested. I revealed you. From the very beginning. That's what Jesus came to do. So that we could know God. That he wanted us to know him. And he sent his son to reveal him. To manifest him. To make him known. The ministry of Jesus was to reveal God. To make him known. To the world. To take away the veil that made him just mysterious. Is there still mystery? Oh yeah. We don't get it all because we're finite. He's infinite. But he opens it up so that we can now behold him. We can see him. The, The word says in Colossians 1.15. Regarding Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Oh God's invisible. We can't see him. But we see Jesus. So we now know What the father's like by seeing him. He's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 to 3 says. He is the radiance of the father's glory. And the exact representation of his nature. I like that. Because there are a lot of things where I think. God I don't really know what you're like. Well look again at Jesus. I get a sense of who he is by looking at Jesus because he reveals him. He's the exact representation of the Father's nature. So I see it. In John 14, um, 9, uh, Jesus says to Philip, uh, He says, when Philip says, Show us the Father, he says, Philip, have I been with you that long and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. We're one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same. John 1 14 uh, and 19 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Verse 19 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or the only begotten Son, has made, nearest to the Father's heart, has made him known. He's made him known. Matthew um, eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom he wills to reveal him. Well, that's exactly what he's saying here in John 17 in his prayer. That's what he came to do, was to reveal him. So, here and uh, throughout this uh, passage, uh, He says, he words it, I came to manifest your name. When Jesus says he manifested the Father's name, he doesn't just mean, you know, he doesn't even mean just the covenantal name of Yahweh, uh, I am. He means I came to manifest your name, your nature, your person. The, The name has in it uh, it represents his title, his dignity, his authority, his majesty, his power, his excellence, his attributes. When they say all through the Bible about the name of God, it doesn't just mean, you know, uh, his, the moniker. It doesn't just mean here's the name the by which he's uh, known, just, a, you know, that kind of thing. It's like this. In Psalm 910, it says... Um, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Well, those who know your name and know what it represents. They know who's behind the name. Psalm 20, verse 7. Speaking in uh, military terms, uh, the psalmist says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. It's battle talk. You know, from uh, 3,000 years ago. Some trust in chariots And some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord. And David said it when he faced Goliath. You come at me with the sword and spear, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. It's like, big deal. Just the name? No, he meant I'm coming to you in the authority, in the power, in the attributes, in the majesty, in the nature of my God. He's saying, God, it's your name on the line here. And I'm coming against this monster of a man in your name. And what happens? God brings the victory. We trust in the name. We depend on the name. We pray in the name. We're coming. The name represents something more than just, you know, and, uh, when we say, you know, oh, what's that guy's name? Oh, Marvin. You know, no, it's something bigger than that. There's, oh, what does Marvin represent? That's what it is. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. I'm trusting in the name. I'm remembering the name. It represents something. Um, So he's praying for these guys to whom he has manifested. And actually, I say guys, and I mean that in the plural sense, because you take somebody like Mary Magdalene, and she's included in that because he definitely manifested the name of the Father to Mary and to some of the others. That's why some of these women were the first ones to know Jesus was resurrected. They were waiting outside the tomb. Why? Because he had manifested the nature of God to them. It wasn't just to these 11 men that were left, but to some of these powerful women that were there. But who are the people that we call disciples to whom Jesus revealed the Father. Five times in this chapter, actually 17 times in this chapter, Jesus uses the word give in one direction or another. The Father gave this, I gave your word, you gave me this, I gave it out. This this gets they're going to give your word to others who will understand and believe. The seventeen times, but five times In this passage, Jesus speaks of the disciples, his followers, as being those whom the Father has given him. Five times, he speaks of the disciples as those whom the Father has given him. He says, I've lost none of those that you gave me. Those you gave me out of the world, I've given eternal life. Those you gave me out of the world, I've manifested your name. I'm asking, I'm praying for those out of the world that you gave me. Funny, we think of, you know, being, you know, given to him. Jesus, Or him being given for us, which is true. Uh, God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. But here, five times he refers to the original disciples and to us, actually. I'm putting myself in there. Those who've been given to Jesus out of the world. What does that mean? He gave us to Jesus. Does that mean that we have no choice? Does that mean that we just are we're either given or we're not given. In John 6:44, Jesus says to the crowd, many of whom were uh, hostile, uh, they were looking for a reason to reject him because His message and His uh, way of life uh, you know didn't fit their narrow, spiritless take on who God is. But Jesus says to them, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." Or her, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. So, it's all God's doing and we're just puppets? No choice in the matter? No, that's not what it means. We, how many have recognized we have a will? <laughs> we, we have a will. The Bible says many things that would be nonsense... If we didn't have a will at all, because it, there are imperatives that it speaks to us. There are things we're to do, that and many things spoken that way. I hear people say at times, we're human beings, not human doings. And I get what they're trying to say, is that it, the life of faith is not just all about doing. But doing is not, not a part of it. Right? There are things we have to do. Like uh, Ryan was just saying a few minutes ago, we have to obey some things. In Hebrews, it even talks about the obedience of faith. There's, it's not just faith without works, but the obedience of faith. We have to do some things. There are choices to be made. The issue is that we don't always make The right choice. Amen? We don't always see clearly to know which is the right choice. In some things. We are, you know, darkened in our understanding. We're darkened in our motives in certain things. So that's why we even sing about amazing grace. Because God has worked in us to bring us to a place so that we do see and we do choose right. Amen? The grace of God. How do these things work? How many have ever heard of this doctrine of predestination? And there's a lot of scripture behind that. There's a truth in there and a reality. It would be ludicrous to say there isn't. Because it's in the Bible. But we also have a will. And it seems like. There's an area in there where where does God's choosing and grace and and my will begin or your will? Because there is something because if it just was based on my free will, guess what? I'm going to hell. I would never have seen or chosen God. I would never have come there. So where is there's a gray area and I don't mind telling you that I don't I don't see it. I don't see where that line is. I, don't see, I see in part and know in part. That's all of us, amen? Different people have put it much better than I could. And yet there are great people on both sides of that debate. And they, I don't believe, will ever completely have it clear until we see from God's perspective when we're with him that, oh, that's how that worked. I have a will. I have the freedom to choose, but grace is working on me the, to bring me to that place to make the right choice. Grace meaning the unmerited favor of God, which supernaturally changes me. Because if it was just the unmerited favor, it sounds like, "Oh, everything's great." But no, there's, there's God's grace working on us where our free will would condemn us to nothing. It would condemn us. To a Christless eternity. So grace is working on us. He's choosing us and giving us to Christ. So, in his grace and mercy, the Father draws us to Jesus to hear him, consider who he is and what he represents. Those who are attracted to him, uh, believe and follow him and are compelled to obey him, have been led to him and given to him by the Father. God draws some, as he says. None have been lost except the son of perdition, which means destruction, the son of destruction. The same word is used a little later in the New Testament, speaking of the Antichrist, that figure. Um, that's a little bit later. It's in uh, 2 Thessalonians two three. That phrase is used one other time. It's considered probably um, what they would call a, a, a semitism, a, a term that was used in the culture, son of destruction, and it was something that, uh, they probably knew right away, that that meant someone who, had the opportunity, but they were wholly given, I mean wholly with a W, they were completely given, that here's the choice to be made, no I reject it, I'm going my way, and their way is destruction, and they, so when it says in verse 12, that Judas, was none were none were forsaken except, uh, or none of them perished except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So God leads and draws some. It's it's mind boggling to think that Judas could have been that close to Jesus and miss it. it it's mind boggling how exactly that all works. I I don't know, but he. God draws some to Jesus. They see. They behold. They get a. Glimpse of who. The living God is. And they say. "Eh, I can't be bothered. Right. And others. Are drawn. And they say. I can't not be bothered something in this disturbs me, unsettles me and I can't look away I can't I can't just dismiss Jesus as nothing. I am happy to say that's me. God drew me there was something even. In my testimony, and I won't go into a lot of it, but in the mouth of an unbeliever, a guy that to my knowledge never did get saved. But he was reading the Bible and it brought me to look into these things. And when I came, I could not just dismiss this as just a passing thing or a phase or some you know, fashionable thing. There was something about it that got in me and I was disturbed by what I read and I couldn't not be. I think it's funny that in C.S. Lewis's uh, testimony, the same thing. He was an atheist. Something about the reality of Christ got in him and he couldn't just get rid of it. He couldn't just dismiss it and became one of the great thinkers, uh, well, certainly of the 20th century and maybe of all of... You know, Christian history just, I mean, I think it's glorious. I think somehow God is able to do that by His grace. We can't, He draws some, He gives those ones to Jesus who can't be contented to just look the other way and walk away from Christ. They must pursue Him. They can't close their ears. It's like when Jesus says, Again and again in Matthew, he says it once in Mark and in the book of Revelation. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's like a lot of people heard it and said, you know, what was Jesus talking about? I don't know, man. He's supposed to be this great religious teacher, but he spent the whole time talking about, you know, seeds. And then he's talking about fish and then he, he was talking about sheep. I, like, make up your mind. You know, <laughs> which motif: fishing, farming, and, and uh, uh, what was the other one? I said, I don't know. But he talked about a lot of stuff. He seems he seems to know a lot about a lot of things. But he didn't even really talk about. It. He just said the kingdom is like this, and it's like, well. I, you know I I was waiting for something deep, something rich. And you know Jesus says, "Let those who have ears to hear, hear." And we hear that and it's like, "What is he talking about? What does that mean? What does that mean for me?" And begin to dig and it comes alive and we can't walk away. If you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can't be undisturbed uh be confident, be glad, rejoice, because God is giving you to Jesus. Do you? How many people remember this movie from actually, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago called The Matrix? How many ever saw that movie? In The Matrix, there's a part where the... And it's quite astounding, some of the imagery in there and even the names that they use... The ship was called, I think, the Nebuchadnezzar, and they're on on their way to Zion, and all these kinds of things. There's a, a point where the hero in the story is offered a choice. And the guy says, I have a red pill and a blue pill. And he says, if you take the blue pill... Uh, If you take the red pill, you're going to follow this thing to the end. You're going to go and that kind of thing. He says, if you don't want to do that and you take the blue pill, you will return to your life as it was and you won't remember any of this. We kind of come to a place in, in reality, in connection to God, where we're offered that choice. Except the difference with us is there is no blue pill option. You won't... Return and forget it completely. Oh, you, you'll you sort of carry on. But if we are uh, brought to Christ, over time, we might sort of forget a little bit of what the weight of the truth was. But we won't return to our life and never forget. I, I have known some really good people in my walk with Christ who turned back after a while. I thought they were given... To Christ as disciples and they were it seemed for a season but when they turn back I've often wondered what kind of life could you possibly live I just Jesus ruins your sin life he does I cannot imagine certain I can't imagine walking away and ever being happy in anything I just I know I would be nagged by the reality of what I've forsaken and a fearful waiting for the end. I pray that never goes away. I, I pray it. I had a dream once. I don't think I've ever told the congregation this and it it wasn't an un, it wasn't a dirty kind of dream. But in the dream there was the knowledge that I had committed adultery and my life was ruined it was hellish there was nothing in the dream like i what i remembered of the dream when i woke up was that this adulterous relationship had already begun and i realized my family is toast my vocation and my aspirations of walking and serving God are done. Everything about me was a sham. It was a good dream. I woke up with this haunting feeling and when I told it to a missionary friend at the time that I knew who had been in Indonesia for 30 years or something, he said, I had that same dream. He said, it scared me. He said it was like a, a, just a Uh, A realization that, wow, this is something you stay right with God. Because your sin life, you if you go back to that stuff, you'll never be happy. And your whole life will be ruined. So God is giving us to Jesus. And if he's attracted you to him, you're a follower, a worshiper of Christ who was drawn to him. Pursue him. Don't turn back. You can't. You have no life. You have no life. Once you've been brought this far, there's no going back. You won't ever forget. You won't ever completely forget who he is and what's acceptable in his sight. You'll never be at peace. Isn't this an encouraging message? Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's good to know this. The Spirit of God has moved on us to respond to Jesus. Okay, we've got just a few minutes, and I'm going to try and cover this. Jesus didn't just, um, uh, sorry, I just turned to the wrong page. Where, Where did we go? Here's the thing with coming to Christ. The part of the gospel, which is good news, the part that is bad news, connected to what I was just saying, is that when Jesus reconciles us to the Father, it puts us out of sync with the world. That's why I, certain things, many things, are just not ever going to be acceptable. We can't ever have peace if we're doing them. We get right with God and we're out of sync with the world. This sin-infected, death-oriented world is no longer our, our home. The kingdom of God is. Amen? It's our home. And the world doesn't like that. We conform to a new value system. We recognize a new king. We receive new life and claim new hope and assurance and security. As God's beloved children. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. That's good. But the world doesn't like it. And the God of this world. Doesn't like it. And he's going to keep pressing. Like a gravitational pull. To suck us back into the world. And just say well don't be radical about serving Jesus. You can serve Jesus and still keep on. No. The, this world, the world system, because the world system is sin-oriented and self-oriented, it's about my glory and not God's glory. Has anybody else noticed this? The world system, the way it functions, is about self. It's about me. It's all about me. And God says, don't love the world or the things in the world. But wait, God also says, He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Correct, he did. He loves humanity. He loves that person sitting next to you. And he loves the person that works next to you tomorrow. And the person that lives next to you. God loves them. He created us out of love, and he redeems us out of love. In this sense of the world, God loves it. He loves people. But when Jesus prays in this passage that he and his followers aren't of the world, he means it in, a, in the same way that he says in John, uh, 1 John 2, 15 and 17. He says, don't love the world. That is the, the fallen world system. Don't love the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, which goes all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis and the fall. It goes all the way back to, oh, God is saying that because you can be wise like God, and God said, don't eat, because he doesn't want you to be wise and understanding and all-knowing like him. And pride takes hold, and okay, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll bite, I'll do it. By the way, it's funny, have you ever noticed that everyone talks about the fruit as being an apple? Just so you know, theologically, it doesn't actually say that. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Just just so that you know we're theologically correct. I don't know what it was, but the apple gets a bad rap, okay? Uh, (laughs) it, It wasn't. Don't love the world. What's in it? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eye, always wanting. The eye is never satisfied. And the boastful pride of life. The wor- and then it says, the, this world is passing away with its lusts. So in that sense, the world continues to pull us and wants us. But that world, that aspect of the world, we are not to love. That is out of sync With loving the Father. This living in this world then means some struggle. Some yielding to the values of the the kingdom of God. Rejection of the world's values. Some crucifying of our own desires. Our own flesh. That are rooted in the world. And the pursuit of righteous. The righteous desires of God. Amen. And this is why Jesus prays for our sanctification in this passage. He says, "Father, sanctify them." Two times he says, "They're not of the world," just like I'm not of the world. And the second time, he—it's like he's saying, "God, that's why they need you to— consec- that's why they need to be sanctified, set apart from what's unclean." God, I don't pray for you to take them out of the world, but I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one who is unrelenting. He will never give up. I heard an 86-year-old pastor say. Several years ago, uh, it was amazing to me. He said he still had to battle sexual lust. He said, and I thought, oh gosh, I was hoping that'd be gone by that age. There it still would be something that would come into his head. And he said, no. And he died faithful at a hundred years old. Uh, you probably know Pastor Bob Birch, uh, Pastor Mel, uh, he was a man from this city who had a great revival in an Anglican church. And this guy, he's, that just tells me that gravitational pull of the world will never stop. So the grace of God is even more unrelenting, and I'm, I'm surrendering to it, I'm counting on it, I'm depending on it, I'm counting on God. So, all of this to say, we're, and if you go back to the end of chapter 16, just before this prayer begins, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. You're going to have some trouble, some struggle, some challenges. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I have overcome it. So, as the people of God, as disciples of God... We can depend on what Jesus did. He said, I kept them. While I was here, I kept them in your name. And now he prays that the Father will keep us from the evil one. I want us to accept what Jesus prayed for. Because I believe he gets what he prays for. And I want it for me. I want it for you guys. I want to finish my course. And I want to finish strong. Amen. I want God to be glorified more than I want me to be glorified. Even if in the moment I'm thinking, oh, this could work out and be good for me. And it's like, wait a second, what does God want? What's good for him? That's what I want, even more. And that requires a, a dying to self. But we're given and saved out of the world. We're kept and victorious And sanctified in the world. And then we're sent. To it. To win it. That's disciples. Those who are given to Jesus. Out of the world. And saved out of the world. Then we're kept. We're sanctified. And we're victorious. In it. And we're sent to it. To win it. As I was sent. I'm sending them. As I was sent into the world, I'm sending them. Let's answer the call. Amen.